1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello, history friends. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're listening to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. Now, I got to tell you, it's one thing to listen, and it's another thing to be there live when your favorite history podcasters do their stuff. Maybe you've been listening to your favorite podcasts for many years, and you never actually realized that these are real people. We're not just Voices in the wilderness speaking to you about things that you're interested in. In fact, we are real people, and you can really meet us. Well, actually, you can't meet me because I won't be there. But on the 29th of June, that is in two weeks' time, you'll be able to go to New York and be able to meet several of your favourite history podcasters, including Mr. History of Rome himself, Mike Duncan, Mr. History of English, Kevin Stroud, Mr. History of England, David Crowther, and so many others. It's a conference called the Intelligent Speech Conference, and it is organized by the Agora Podcast Network. You can find out more by going to intelligentspeechconference.com. It is not at all too late to get tickets, and if you use the code WDF, you'll get 5% off the cost price. And that price itself has been reduced because they moved to a new venue to accommodate all these lovely history friends that want to attend. And speaking of lovely history friends, if you want to talk to history friends, not in person, but over the internet, then the app Flick has got you covered. Search for the app Flick in the iTunes store or whatever they're calling themselves now because they're changing their entire branding soon enough. But if you search for the app Flick, Android, Apple or anywhere else and download that bad boy, you'll be able to talk to me and different history friends without having to sign up for one of those social media profiles like Twitter or Facebook. And you'll be able to avoid the noise and avoid all those bothersome things in the news feed that you don't really want to bother with. It's super simple and the app is free and pretty much all the time we're updating it with new conversations for discussion. The latest discussion in the Flick app is going to revolve around this episode right here. We're going to be asking, do you think that the Allies should have accepted the German counter-proposals? If you have an opinion on that, why not head on over to that Flick app and talk to us all about it. Finally, before we begin, you should know that pretty soon we're starting something very cool called Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which will be available to $5 patrons and above. So if delving through the history of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, with all of its triumphs and defeats and bitterness and inspiration sounds like something you'd be interested in, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up now for $5 a month. From September, we'll be delving into that bad boy. And in fact, that will be taking up our Patreon analysis for the next, well, few years, because I'll be doing a PhD, and I won't have time to start The Age of Bismarck, which is kind of sad, but it does mean that when we do release The Age of Bismarck, you'll all be on notice, and trust me, the wait will be worth it. I don't want to say that to overshadow what I've done with Poland Is Not Yet Lost, but I have been asked, when is The Age of Bismarck coming out? And to be honest, that's a question I'd like the answer to as well, but until I know that answer... All that is not yet lost has got you covered. I'm kind of looking forward to returning to this era, to the 1700s, but also to the 1600s for the Thirty Years' War, which we will also be doing in September. So join me for all that juicy content in September once you get well sick of me after listening to all this and need a break from my dulcet tones. Until then though, guys, enjoy this episode. We're to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode seventy-six. Today is the sixteenth of June, two thousand and nineteen, and over this period in history, one hundred years ago, occurred the following events. The domination of the Paris Peace Conference by the German counter proposals was nearly at an end when the Big Three gathered together for the umpteenth time on the morning of Wednesday, the eleventh of June. They were on the final stretch towards the culmination of the German peace treaty, a journey which had entered its final phase on the 7th of May, with the handing of the peace treaty to Ulrich von Brockdorff-Rantzau, and which increased notably in temperature with the receipt of German counter-proposals on the twenty-ninth of May. Since that point, the Allies had fulminated and divided themselves over how to respond. We saw last time that they seemed surprisingly distracted in the first week and a half of June. While discussing and formulating a joint response to the German defiance was at the top of their to-do list, other matters kept intervening. Remarkably though, from the 11th of June, the minutes record a palpable uptick in productivity, as the big three, joined occasionally by Italy and Japan, worked through each of the relevant points of the counter-proposals. In the process, they demonstrated just how thorough the German note had been. It was essential, the Allies believed, that all the German challenges be answered, lest the Germans could say that the Allies were on shaky ground. So it was that the German counter-proposals, which had themselves taken more than three weeks to materialise, would only be answered by a document from the Allies, which itself took nearly three weeks to be created. The process was complex, and it must have been incredibly frustrating for the Big Three and the minor nations like Poland, who were being asked to explain themselves when they thought the deal was done by the 16th of june though we're told that the finished product was ready on this day 100 years ago the big three finally did it they engaged in the final piece of negotiations with the germans and came out on the other side in this episode it's my task to examine this moment as well as the laborious discussions which helped facilitate it while to those present at the time the experience may have been akin to pulling teeth for us it hopefully will be a little more exciting than that. To begin with, it helps to imagine the Allied response to the Kendra proposals not as a single document, but as several contingent parts stapled together. The German Kendra proposals, we may recall, had a particular structure and contents page, and addressed several of the more objectionable aspects of the draft peace treaty in dedicated sections. The Allied reply followed the same formula, and it addressed German objections in dedicated sections too. The result was a document which was easy to compare to the German counter-proposals, which, of course, was precisely the point. At this late stage in the game, there was no need to complicate the process unnecessarily, and the Allied response essentially mirrored what the Germans had done, but, of course, taking very different perspectives on the relevant topics. On Wednesday the 11th of June and Thursday the 12th of June especially, the Allies worked through each of the counter proposals bit by bit and suggested answers to the German challenges. In many instances, it was decided that the existing text of the treaty was sufficient, but in some examples the Allies did decide to change things, most notably in the upper Silesian region where a plebiscite was agreed to. Even if the pre-existing treaty was adequate, the Allies still had to actually respond to each German point, and they normally based their response on their moral high ground and the principles of the 14 points, not to mention the immediate needs and justice of the continent, and Germany's crimes. From a narrative point of view, there's not much point in examining each of the developing Allied responses in detail, because, first and foremost, we'd get severely bogged down, but also because the end result rather than the small changes made along the way, is the most important part of our story. And these small changes really were small. On the 11th and 12th of June, the Big Three spent several minutes arguing over which word to substitute in different sentences, and on occasions where whole paragraphs were devised from scratch, these will be thoroughly examined as well. The process was immense, but it was bound to be, since the Big Three were not creating paperwork for the sake of it, ...but answering an actual challenge to their authority and to their moral position. They had to guarantee that their stance was watertight... ...their conclusions unassailable if they were to make any impression upon the world. It is also worth considering that the Allies might have learned something from the earlier process... ...from the first week of May, where the draft treaty was invented and presented... ...all within a few days, and few opportunities were had to actually absorb the different sections. Here, by contrast the Allies spent a good deal of time making minor tweaks to certain aspects of the treaty, so that they would have, not merely their response to Germany's counter proposals, but also Peace Treaty Version 2, essentially, to present to them. It does seem that the Allies had become aware of their lacklustre performance over the previous week, and there was a great deal of momentum behind their efforts to make proper progress. On the 11th of June, for example, the reparations aspects and those articles dealing with Germany's eastern borders were both finalised. The Allies were essentially building a jigsaw in their quest to answer all the German challenges, but these were some of the most difficult puzzle pieces to create. Of course, along with talking about eastern borders, it was necessary to talk about Poland, and Lloyd George found, once again, that he could not resist making it plain how little time he had for the Poles in this argument, or their civilization generally. The discussion of Upper Silesia, a region which was in dispute between Poles and Germans, according to a long section of the German proposals, uncovered some interesting revelations about how George Clemenceau and Woodrow Wilson felt too. Wilson and Clemenceau in their turn claimed that they did not believe a plebiscite for the region of Upper Silesia was necessary, but added that they had agreed to it largely to appease Lloyd George. And to account for the fact that accurate information was hard to come by about the region, and this was therefore the best way to reach a fair resolution for that area. Lloyd George responded to this by saying that the Poles, like the Irish, were especially good at propaganda, the Allies were only hearing one side of the case. Lloyd George added that. When I had talked to the Poles about the Jews, they had given the impression that they were treating them like angels of light, although it was notorious how they really treated them. I had no wish to act on one-sided information. In an interesting foreshadowing of what would occur in 1939, Lloyd George insisted that If the Germans should break off negotiations on this point, I would not feel justified in ordering British soldiers to fight simply because a plebiscite had been refused, and I would have to say so. I do not believe the troops of other nations would fight each other in such circumstances. Indeed, Poland's centrality to the eruption of the Second World War, while Lloyd George couldn't have imagined it here, did demonstrate that sympathy with the Poles was high, or at least was high by 1939. But the Prime Minister wasn't finished displaying his bias just yet. Wilson challenged Lloyd George's presentation of the Poles as propagandists, saying... No one could induce me to believe that the Poles, who were in no political position, would be better propagandists in Upper Silesia than the Germans, who were, and added that, As against the Germans, I am pro-Pole with all my heart. Yet, pro-Pole though he may have been, Woodrow Wilson did not dispute Lloyd George's following statement, as the Prime Minister said, I am convinced that all the trouble with Germany would relate to the Eastern Front, I do not want to belittle any particular nation, but for the moment there was no doubt that the Germans had a higher civilization than the Poles. As a matter of fact, they rather despised the Poles. To force a race of that kind against their will, under a race that they regarded as inferior, was not to promote peace. I am afraid of prolonging the war for unjustifiable reasons. If we said to the Germans, you must clear out to make way for the Poles, I am convinced they would refuse. If, however, we said... Clear out because we want to hold a plebiscite, I do not believe they would refuse. This incredibly provocative idea that German civilization was somehow better than Polish civilization demonstrates the core of Lloyd George's bias. He did not merely believe that it was bad to offend the Germans, he also believed it was bad to aid the Poles. One imagines he would have been happy if the Poles had remained suppressed and perhaps he did see in their struggle some element of the Irish question which had plagued him for so long. This makes sense as to why he drew up the apparently unrelated comparison between the Poles and the Irish's brilliant propagandists. Maybe Lloyd George felt threatened by the similarity of the two cases, but either way, he wasn't finished demonstrating his anti-Polishness quite yet. These discussions highlighted the true feelings of the Big Three towards the plebiscite idea, but just in case Lloyd George hadn't been paying attention, Clemenceau echoed these sentiments later that afternoon on the 11th. The French Premier noted that he regretted the plebiscite and considered that, from a political point of view, it was not good. Henceforth, we must expect great trouble on the eastern frontiers of Germany. Historically, the region of Upper Silesia had been. ...under the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and then the Habsburgs... ...until Frederick the Great's sudden invasion and annexation in 1742 of the Silesian region. From that point onwards, the area of Silesia was Germanized and Polish residents were pushed out. The historical justification for hosting a plebiscite was thus somewhat uncomfortable... ...particularly when the Big Three had committed themselves to right the wrongs of Prussia in other cases... Nevertheless, Clemenceau indicated that while he did not like it, he would not oppose his colleagues in this scheme. This was to have profound consequences. What followed in the late afternoon was the finalising of the plebiscite idea for Upper Silesia. This was arguably the most significant impact which the German counter-proposals had on the Draft Peace Treaty, aside from wasting more than a fortnight of time, of course. In March 1921, the plebiscite would be carried out, but not until three separate uprisings in the 60% ethnically Polish province had erupted, costing thousands of needless lives. One wonders whether, if Lloyd George had been less inherently anti-Polish, the plebiscite would even have taken place. As it happened, following the plebiscite, the region was split between the parts that voted for union with Poland and those that voted for union with Germany. Discussions resumed then on Germany's responsibility for the war, the next morning on the 12th of June, and the Anglo-French visions of a post-war settlement were brought into immediate conflict, with Lloyd George's expressed belief that an occupation of the Rhineland by Allied forces was in no way necessary. Lloyd George insisted that since the guarantee had been given by Britain and the United States to defend France in the event of a German attack, occupying the Rhineland for 15 years would achieve no purpose of defence, His difficulty, Lloyd George said, was to get the occupation clauses accepted by Parliament. The minutes recorded his appeal. They would say, why do you want both occupation and a guarantee? He was in a real difficulty here. He asked whether Monsieur Clemenceau would allow him to make a statement to Parliament about the understanding between the Allies. This, of course, would be after the signature of peace, but it would indicate to the Germans the intention. Clemenceau declared that, it would be impossible to concede to the Germans a reduction in the period of occupation. Clemenceau was prepared, however, to do his best, in the delicate matter of drafting a statement which could be used by Mr Lloyd George in Parliament. Lloyd George then reached the climax of his challenges to the occupation of the Rhineland idea, in the process demonstrating how little he understood of the French mindset. Lloyd George said, A prolonged occupation was not really necessary for the protection of France. It was insisted on mainly for political reasons. If the occupation was to be for a prolonged period, it should be made as harmless as possible. I wish to utter a warning, and I intend to make a formal protest on the subject, that a prolonged occupation will be a great peril for France and a prolonged peril to the peace of Europe. Clemenceau replied with some sadness that he could not accept that point of view. It was necessary, Clemenceau insisted, that the German people should see a foreign army on German soil as a guarantee for the payment of the indemnity. Clemenceau added that he himself would remember the German occupation in 1871 and what a relief it had been when the Germans had left. They moved not a man until the last penny was paid. An occupation was necessary as a reminder to the Germans that they owed money which they should pay. Of course, a guarantee on reparations was not the sole reason for occupation. Strategic considerations, in the event of the justified mistrust of the Anglo-American guarantee to France, and the hope that the region might vote to unite with France after the 15-year period, also played a role. The difference in opinion was resolved without much consequences, but statements like these from Lloyd George must have made Clemenceau wonder if the Prime Minister had been asleep in his chair for the past six months. Clemenceau felt well within his rights to occupy the Rhineland, and Lloyd George's late challenges of these rights must have stung, even if they had little long-term impact. In the afternoon of the 12th of June, perhaps the most significant development was the decision to appoint a committee which would be tasked with editing the reply to Germany. This demonstrated that the Big Three took the task very seriously, and also that they accepted they would need more help in producing the final, completed reply, which, as we said, was released on this day, the 16th of June, a 100 years ago. So they had four days to make it, in other words. So, continuing to work through the list of articles which the German counter-proposals had challenged, the Allies settled on the terms for the military, the Navy, and prisoners of war, among others. These steps essentially helped to flesh out the reply, and the editing committee would be handed more authority to write up sections of the Allied reply without the Big Three's interference thereafter. This would help speed up the whole process. One arm of the Allied response to further German defiance was discussed next on the 13th of June, as the reimposition of the Allied blockade on Germany was imposed. Interestingly, the Allies concluded that it would be far too impolitique to actually re-engage with the stringent blockade of Germany again, since it would lead inexorably to the deaths of many civilians. Thus it was decided that the Allies would make a show of preparing for the reimposition of the blockade, so as to make the Germans believe that this penalty would follow their refusal to sign. Discussion of the military penalties for German defiance would be tackled within a few days. A common trend in the minutes by this point ...was the ginormous size of each entry, but the very small size of the discussion in the minutes. This was because, for each day that the minutes were recording, the appendices were growing at an incredible rate... ...as the approved segments of the Allied reply accumulated and were tacked on to the end of each minute's entry for the sake of Allied records. On the one hand, this gives us a great picture of how the process was coming along... ...and it helps us power through the very dense discussions of minute alterations to draft sentences and paragraph structures, which, after all, someone had to talk about. The Allies seemed to remember on the morning of Saturday the 14th of June that they had an editing committee on standby, so they delegated authority to it on several questions, including those relating to Russia, Luxembourg, Austria, and the guarantees of execution, which legally obliged the parties to honour the settlement. That evening, it was debated how Upper Silesia might fare in the reparations question, despite reparations on Upper Silesia being already finalised as separate issues within the larger treaty. Evidently, loopholes and last-minute adjustments were still managing to present themselves, but in the afternoon of the 14th of June, the unenviable task of actually telling the Poles what had been decided upon was on the agenda. When informed that a plebiscite would be held for Upper Silesia after all, Paderewski did not attempt to hide his disappointment and he actually exclaimed how he could not conceal the fact that this decision was a very serious blow for Poland. Paderewski then attempted to explain precisely why this was such a sad day. ...of the Polish border with the Treaty of Versailles, and, of course, the eruption of the Second World War. Paderewski noted, First, it would affect the people of Poland sentimentally. They believed President Wilson's principles like the gospel. The second reason was that it would cause bitter disappointment. If the plebiscite did not bring the result I hoped for, it would be the poor neighbours of Poland's race who would be the first to suffer. For centuries they had been treated like slaves. They had been driven out of their country and sent to Westphalia, and compelled to force labour in Berlin and elsewhere. They had hoped in future to live decent lives on their ancestral soil. If the plebiscite did not come up to expectations, it would cause terrible disappointment. Thirdly, the country, owing to the plebiscite, would be in chaotic condition, and I hope, therefore, that it would be taken within three or six months of the peace, in order to quieten things down. It would increase the excitement in Poland. The plebiscite was not like an election, since it was to decide the destiny of the country perhaps for centuries. The people would become demoralized, all sorts of impossible and unreasonable promises would be made. This was why the people of Poland did not accept the idea. The Polish delegation could only accept the decision with profound respect, but with deep sorrow. Perhaps in a mixture of regret and fear for the future... Wilson responded to Paderewski by saying, according to the minutes, that Mr. Paderewski has taken up a very fine position which has considerably shaken me. And Lloyd George then rushed to the defence of the plebiscite idea, as if on cue, claiming that he was much moved by the case put by Mr. Paderewski, for whom I have the very greatest personal respect. It was only after the deepest consideration that I had come to the conclusion. That a plebiscite was desirable. Later that day, another key problem with the partitioning of empires into rump states and associated states presented itself. Since parts of Poland were once part of the German Empire, and since Germany had to pay reparations, did that mean that Poland, more specifically that piece of Poland they just could not leave alone in Upper Silesia, would also have to pay reparations? Lloyd George said yes, Wilson and Clemenceau said no based on the fact, as Wilson put it, Whatever views anyone might hold about Poland, the Polish people had been compelled to fight for the Central Powers. They had no choice. Their territory had been devastated by Russia, as well as Germany. They had suffered as hard a fate as any nation in the war. As all had, from the first, agreed that Poland was one of the nations to be redeemed by the war, the question arose as to whether any share of German reparation ought to be subtracted from her. The question which Mr Lloyd George raised had been discussed again and again, and had been given up because no decision could be reached. I recalled the discussions on the subject in connection with Austria. The reason why Wilson referred to Austria here was because the Habsburgs presented the greatest challenge to the notions of reparations, because it was impossible to argue that the small rump Austrian state could afford the reparations bill, which the likes of the Italians wished to impose upon her. Yet it was equally impolitique to suggest that those former parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire should be slapped with a percentage of the Reparations Bill. Lloyd George's argument that they should was based on the belief that, in fact, Poles had fought against the Allies during the war, and were in many respects an enemy combatant. Wilson's argument that they had had no choice was certainly the more reasonable one. In the event, Poles had often fought against one another as well, thanks to the division of their country into three little blocks. However, to Lloyd George, this approach would amount to what he called loading the dice against Germany in the Upper Silesian question, because if the population there knew that they would have to pay reparations, if under German control, but would be freed from that burden under Polish control, surely then the population of Upper Silesia would vote to unite with Poland to avoid those reparations. Wilson objected in the strongest terms to this suggestion and presented the Prime Minister with an important reminder that he was not obliged under the armistice to agree to a plebiscite in Upper Silesia at all, as number 13 of the 14 points was perfectly clear on the subject. Furthermore, Wilson noted that he had only conceded the plebiscite in the first place to meet Lloyd George's principles and preserve allied unity. Wilson then added that, So far as Germany was concerned, having accepted the 14 points, she had no case to claim a plebiscite. I do not say that Mr. Lloyd George had no case to claim this, but only that Germany had not. As the population had been ground down under the landowners, it would not be loading the dice to make it exempt from sharing Germany's burden of reparation. Refreshing though it was to see Wilson make some stand against Lloyd George's blatant anti-Polish sentiments, the plebiscite still went ahead. Notwithstanding these disputes in the Council, Sir Maurice Hankey was able to announce on the morning of Monday the 16th of June that the Articles on the occupation of the Rhine were now ready. This meant, in short, that the Allied reply was effectively ready as well, and in light of this, discussion turned to other matters during the day. Austria's peace treaty was discussed in the early afternoon, followed by conversation with Marshal Foch over lunch, on the subject of what the Allies would do if the Germans refused to sign. Foch presented some new ideas in the course of these conversations. We might recall his old plan to move steadily towards Berlin and create a pincer movement which would trap the German remnants before a proper defence could be mounted. Now, though, Foch declared his intention to force the acceptance of the treaty's terms by wresting a capitulation from each one of the German states individually, then leaving Prussia until last. To do this, though, Foch claimed he would need more soldiers. This idea and this approach by Foch was not particularly popular. Foch was also criticised for not having presented this idea sooner, and he was asked to go with the previous plan, which would not require any additional military commitments from the Big Three. Later that day, it was also agreed that Foch would not receive any more men, and he would have to make do that the Big Three stopped discussing the terms of their reply speaks to the fact that it was effectively ready by the early afternoon of the 16th of June. It remained to be communicated to the Germans, and with a five-day deadline, the Allies were guaranteed that very soon the peace process, which had begun on the 7th of May, could finally be brought to an end. On this day, a hundred years ago in short, a significant milestone in the history of the Paris Peace Conference was reached, and like so many other milestones we have come across, its significance is largely lost in the narrative. This Allied response represented a solid defence of their peace treaty, and a rebuke of Germany's pretenses to be standing for the 14 points, whereas the Allies were not. Thomas A. Bailey, writing in 1947, introduces us to the tone and structure of the Allied riposte, saying... The Germans, in their protests against the treaty, asserted that they had made a solemn pre-armistice contract with their enemy, in which they were promised a peace based on the 14 points, with one reservation and one elucidation. They now alleged that many of those points had been broken, and as a consequence the contract had been violated. The Allies, in their reply, candidly admitted that they had entered into such a contract, but they unequivocally denied that they had broken the 14 points. Their defence was devastating. It will be remembered that Berlin had sued for a peace based on the original 14 points, and all the subsequent points and principles relating to peace which Wilson had set forth in his public utterances. Unluckily for the Germans, some of these supplementary points contradicted and wiped out all the others. The Allies made powerful use of these forgotten points in rebuting the German claims. This was the gist of the Allied reproach. And if you expected the Germans to have a good time of things from here on in, then it's likely you really haven't been paying attention. Of course, the Germans' counter proposals were unlikely to place any kind of cap on the Allied demands, nor was it really ever in doubt that the Allies would act according to their interests, regardless of Germany's feelings. The Big Three were never going to fundamentally change the peace treaty, which they had spent the last five months crafting. They did, as we saw, make some minor adjustments, but anything else was never on the menu, and it is probable that the Germans did not expect any radical results. What the Germans did expect was to be treated according to the promises which they believed had been made in the twilight days of the war, which they insisted had induced them to sign the armistice in the first place. There was no question of a peace without victory emerging now but the Germans were absolutely determined to take the Allies to task and to support their gripes with the evidence that the American President in particular had provided for them. What the Germans seemed to have failed to realise, as Thomas Bailey noted above, was that Wilson said an awful lot of things and not all of these things could be construed in their favour. Thus, while the Allies were perfectly willing to contend the German claims, they were not willing to admit the error of their ways in bringing forward this victor's peace. In fact, they had given the German counter-proposals a massive amount of time, which might by itself seem odd, until we note the fact that the Allies were required to respond to a challenge to their authority, the first and most serious challenge, by the way, that the Germans had yet mounted. That they responded with such detail and after such careful deliberation tells us that the Allies took their position as the moral arbiter of the New World Order very seriously indeed and in fact, they provide the historian with an invaluable defence of the Allied position, as the historian George Creel appreciated when he wrote, It is to be wished that the two documents, the German of May the 29th and the Allied reply of June 16th, could be printed in every language and placed in every school and library, for they furnish in themselves a complete and dramatic exposition of the whole peace treaty, permitting the formation of an intelligent and independent opinion with respect to the confused question of justice or injustice. The German note was passionate without being strong, and even so ardent an admirer as Mr. Keynes admits regretfully that it "...did not succeed in exposing, in burning and prophetic words, the insincerity of the transaction. The Allied note, on the contrary, had strength without passion, and even as it made many and important concessions and modifications, So was it at pains to explain every rejection? The Allied response was thus more than a response. It was a critically important step in the peacemaking process and a vital link of the literature in the period. What then, we may hazard to ask, did the Allies actually say in this response to the Germans on this day 100 years ago? Well, it's about time we investigated history, friends, and found out for ourselves. Let's remind ourselves what the German counter proposals set out to do in the first place. They were the German attempt to challenge the 440 Articles, which constituted the draft peace treaty, but they were also an attempt to challenge the very basis on which the peace treaty was created. In the German viewpoint, the present peace treaty was not in keeping with the principles of the 14 points, but in the Allied view, it actually was, and they would prove it by providing quotations of their own from figures which justified the Allied reproach. In the opening sentences of the Allied reply, the document read The Allied and Associated Powers had given the most earnest consideration to the observations of the German delegation on the conditions of peace. The reply protests against the peace both on the grounds that it conflicts with the terms upon which the armistice of November 11th 1918 was signed, and that it is a peace of violence and not of justice the protest of the German delegation shows that they utterly fail to understand the position in which Germany stands today. They seem to think that Germany has only to make sacrifices in order to attain peace, as if this were but the end of some mere struggle for territory and power. An explanation of German culpability for the war was then provided including Prussia's striving for dominance over Central Europe and the West, the violation of Serbian sovereignty with the sponsored ultimatum, and the violation of Belgian neutrality with the invasion. Then the expressions of the Big Four allied leaders were provided to give context to the notions of justice which underpinned the peace treaty. The context then established. A striking section of the document then presents itself and reads, Justice, therefore is the only possible basis for the settlement of the accounts of this terrible war. Justice is what the German delegation asks for and says that Germany has been promised. Justice is what Germany shall have. But it must be justice for all. There must be justice for the dead and wounded and for those that have been orphaned and bereaved that Europe might be free from Prussian despotism. There must be justice for the peoples who now stagger under war debts which exceed £30 billion that liberty might be saved. There must be justice for those millions whose homes and land, ships and property, German savagery has spoiled and destroyed. That is why the Allied and Associated Powers have insisted, as a cardinal feature of the treaty, that Germany must undertake to make reparation to the very uttermost of her power. For reparation, for wrongs inflicted, is of the essence of justice. That is why they insist that those individuals who are most clearly responsible for German aggression and for those acts of barbarism and inhumanity which have disgraced the German conduct of the war must be handed over to a justice which has not been meted out to them at home. That too is why Germany must submit for a few years to certain special disabilities and arrangements. Germany has ruined the industries, the mines and the machinery of neighbouring countries, not during battle but with the deliberate and calculated purpose of enabling her industries to seize their markets before their industries could recover from the devastation thus wantonly inflicted upon them. Germany has despoiled her neighbours of everything she could make use of or carry away. Germany has destroyed the shipping of all nations on the high seas, where there was no chance of rescue for their passengers and crews. It is only justice that restitution should be made and that these wronged peoples should be safeguarded for a time from the competition of a nation... Whose industries are intact and have been even fortified by machinery stolen from occupied territories. If these things are hardships for Germany, they are hardships which Germany has brought upon herself. Somebody must suffer for the consequences of the war. Is it to be Germany or only the peoples she has wronged? This was a formidable challenge, and it signalled that the Allies were determined to cling to the moral high ground. In many respects, Germany had made it easy for them especially by her technical ignition of the war and destruction of those portions of the west where her soldiers had fought. The Allied reply also swatted aside any suggestion that the Weimar Republic should receive different treatment from that of the former imperial German government which had actually directed the war. It is said that the German revolution ought to make a difference and that the German people are not responsible for the policies of the rulers whom they have thrown from power. The Allied and Associated Powers recognise and welcome the change. It represents a great hope for peace and for a new European order in the future. But it cannot affect the settlement of the war itself. The German Revolution was stayed until the German armies had been defeated in the field, and all hope of profiting by a war of conquest had vanished. Throughout the war, as before the war, the German people and their representatives supported the war, voted the credits, subscribed to the war loans, Obeyed every order, however savage, of their government. They shared the responsibility for the policy of their government, for at any moment, had they willed it, they could have reversed it. Had that policy succeeded, they would have acclaimed it with the same enthusiasm with which they welcomed the outbreak of the war. They cannot now pretend, having changed their rulers after the war was lost, that it is justice that they should escape the consequences of their deeds. Addressing each of the German proposals in brief in this introductory section, the Allies then discounted each one of them. The Germans had misunderstood the economic clauses. The Allies had no intention of strangling Germany. Reparations were essential to get Europe working again. It was impossible to keep non-Germans under German control simply to maintain a land bridge between East and West Prussia. And a whole range of other concerns were also considered. The main body of the Allied response is available for free online but by and large we do not need to detail its contents, since the only change of note which is explained is the Allied willingness to host a plebiscite in Upper Silesia, largely thanks to Lloyd George's petitioning, as we have seen. In fact, it is the concluding paragraph to Clemenceau's opening address in this introductory section of the Allied reply that proves the most informative and useful for us. It read... In conclusion... The Allied and Associated Powers must make it clear that this letter and the memorandum attached constitute their last word. They have examined the German observations and counter proposals with earnest attention and care. They have, in consequence, made important practical concessions, but in its principles, they stand by the treaty. They believe that it is not only a just settlement of the Great War, but that it provides the basis upon which the peoples of Europe can live together in friendship and equality. At the same time, it creates the machinery for the peaceful adjustment of all international problems by discussion and consent, whereby the Settlement of 1919 itself can be modified from time to time to suit new facts and new conditions as they arise. As such, the treaty in its present form must be accepted or rejected. The Allied and Associated Powers, therefore, require a declaration from the German delegation within five days from the date of this communication, that they are prepared to sign the treaty as it stands today. If they declare within this period that they are prepared to sign the treaty as it stands, arrangements will be made for the immediate signature of the peace at Versailles. In default of such a declaration, this communication constitutes the notification provided for in Article 2 of the Convention of February 16th, 1919, prolonging the armistice, which was signed on November 11th, 1918, and has already been prolonged by the agreement... Of December 13th 1918 and January 16th 1919. The said armistice will then terminate and the allied and associated powers will take such steps as they think needful to enforce their terms. In such a manner was the gauntlet thrown down to the German government. They would now be faced either with a resumption of the war or the acceptance of a treaty which was believed to be utterly unfair and a terrible humiliation. For many in the fledgling Weimar Republic, this wasn't much of a choice at all. Many would resign, but many more would view this treaty as the beginning of their journey of revenge, which would not end until 1939, an apocalyptic catastrophe. The less exciting, lesser-known individuals who fell in neither of these camps were the only ones left standing. These men were determined to make lemonade out of the lemons which threatened to crush them, but there were still several days left before the deadline would expire. Sure, the Allies said that this reply amounted to the last word, and sure, the Allies had said that the treaty now bridged would stand, but was this... was this really true? The gauntlet, though it was plainly there for all to see, still contained a few asterisks in the mind of some hopeful Germans, who hoped, against hope, that this was not the final word after all, and that with some minor adjustments, the still bitter pill could have some of its jagged edges filed away, and thereafter be swallowed. Within the week, the reality of the situation would come crashing down, but for the moment, the Allied reply of the 16th of June represented a show of unity which was much more impressive on paper than it was in truth. The hard work had now been done though, and all the big three now had to do was hold it together for another week. Could they manage it? The answer to the despair of the German government was yes. Uh you
0: The uh-huh